We are celebrating heroes this month, women who transformed America over the past 200 years, remarkable women of notable achievements as far back as 1776, from the fields of social work, science, politics, sports, medicine, law, and adventure. Many who were hampered by constraints we can't even imagine today. This is Laurie Johnson. Join me as we look back and appreciate what they contributed. Their goal was not money or notoriety, but simply a better life for children, families, society, and the environment. They broke free from the stereotypical female role. Their independent spirits have made a difference for us today. We stand on their shoulders and we salute them this month. Women's History Month, or shall we say, Her Story Month. Please note that this episode contains talk of suicide and violence against the trans community. We will remind you before the section begins in case you would like to avoid that content. What is often called exceptional ability is nothing more than persistent endeavor. Born as Anna Pauline Murray, she became known as Polly, born in 1910. Polly was an American civil rights activist who became a lawyer, gender equality advocate, Episcopal priest, and author. Drawn to the ministry in 1977, Polly became one of the first women and the first African-American woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. Born in Baltimore, Maryland, Murray was essentially orphaned and then raised mostly by a maternal aunt in Durham, North Carolina. At age 16, Murray moved to New York City to attend Hunter College and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English in 1933. By 1940, Murray sat in the whites-only section of a Virginia bus with a friend, and they were arrested for violating state segregation laws. This incident and subsequent involvement with the Socialist Workers' Defense League led Murray to pursue a career goal of working as a civil rights lawyer. Murray enrolled in the law school at Howard University, the only woman in the class. Murray graduated first in this class, but was denied the chance to do postgraduate work at Harvard University because of her gender. She called such prejudice against women Jane Crow, alluding to the Jim Crow laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern United States. Murray earned a master's degree in law at University of California, Berkeley, and in 1965 became the first African-American to receive a Doctor of Juridical Science degree from Yale Law School. As a lawyer, Murray argued for civil rights and women's rights. Thurgood Marshall, chief counsel for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, called Murray's 1950 book, States Laws on Race and Color, the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. Murray was appointed by President John F. Kennedy to serve on the 1961-1963 Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. In 1966, Murray was a co-founder of the National Organization for Women. 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, named Murray as a co-author of the ACLU brief on the landmark 1971 Supreme Court case Reed v. Reed in recognition of Murray's pioneering work on gender discrimination. This case articulated the failure of the courts to recognize sex discrimination for what it was and its common features with other types of arbitrary discrimination. Murray held faculty or administrative positions at the Ghana School of Law, Benedict College, and Brandeis University. In 1973, Murray left academia for activities associated with the Episcopal Church. She became an ordained priest in 1977, among the first generation of women priests. In addition to this legal and advocacy work, Murray published two well-reviewed autobiographies and also initially published in 1970, Dark Testament, a poetry collection, which was reissued in 2018. Murray's sexual and gender identity did not fit within the prevailing norms at the time. Murray had a brief annulled marriage to a man and several deep relationships with women. Murray, in younger years, had occasionally passed as a teenage boy. Murray died in 1985. We have to build things that we want to see accomplished in life and in our country to make sure that others do not have to suffer the same discrimination. Patsy Mink knew from a young age she wanted to run for a position in government. Little did she know she would become the first woman of color elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and the first Asian American woman to serve in Congress. In addition to writing bills like Title IX, the Early Childhood Education Act, and the Women's Educational Equity Act, Mink was the first Asian American to run for U.S. president. Patsy Takamoto was born in 1927 in Hawaii. Her father was a civil engineer. When she was a junior at Maui High School, she won her first election as class president. She graduated in 1944 as the valedictorian. After graduation, she went on to attend Wilson College in Pennsylvania and the University of Nebraska, but transferred after facing racial discrimination. Students of color were not allowed to live in the same dorms as white students. She decided to move to Honolulu to finish her schooling at the University of Hawaii with hopes of becoming a doctor. At university, she became a member of the varsity debate team and was elected president of the Pre-Medicine Student Club. She graduated in 1948 with majors in zoology and chemistry. After medical school rejections, Mink decided to apply and was accepted at the University of Chicago Law School. She met John Mink playing bridge at the International House. The two married, and Patsy graduated from law school in 1951. They moved to Hawaii after having their daughter, who grew up, to become an author and advocate for women's issues. While in Hawaii, Patsy Mink registered for the bar exam to be able to practice law in the territory. Unfortunately, even after she passed, 
Mink was unable to find a job because of her interracial marriage. She decided to start her own practice instead and founded the Oahu Young Democrats in 1954. She became the first Japanese-American woman to practice law in her home state of Hawaii. When Hawaii became a state in 1959, Mink immediately began campaigning for Congress. Although Mink's first attempt was unsuccessful, she returned to politics in 1962 when she won a seat in the Hawaii State Senate. In 1964, Mink won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, making her the first Asian-American woman to serve in Congress. As a congresswoman, Mink fought for gender and racial equity, affordable child care, bilingual education, and became a supporter of Title IX. She was one of the authors and sponsors of the Title IX law that stated that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. In 1974, she was able to pass the Women's Educational Equity Act to promote gender equality in all schools. Recognized for her work, Mink was asked by the Oregon Democrats to run for United States president with the support of their party. Their focus on the anti-war movement attracted Mink, and she decided to run for president. Unfortunately, she only received 2% of the vote. After this, Mink remained active in politics and served as the president of the Americans for Democratic Action. She also served as Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. In 1990, Mink was re-elected to Congress and served six terms in the House of Representatives. During this time, she also formed the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. In August of 2002, Mink was hospitalized for pneumonia and one month later died in Honolulu, Hawaii. Due to the upcoming election, her name was still on the ballot in November, even though she passed the month before. She won the election by a landslide, but was replaced by Ed Case. After her death, the Title IX law was renamed the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. I would say Patsy Mink may have perseverance in her middle name. Esther was born in Seebeck, Washington Territory, November 16, 1869. In 1894, she was the second woman to graduate from the University of Oregon Medical School and the first woman to practice. Four years later, in 1898, she followed her husband, Dr. Emil Paul, to Alaska for the gold rush. Emil died of encephalitis in 1909. Her brother Fred was murdered on the Dawson Trail, and she lost her only child, Frederick, at the age of eight to an ulcer of the bowel. Despite these difficulties, 
she practiced medicine in Portland, where she became the first female to hold the post of chairman of the health department in a city of that size. She installed the city's first school nurse, wrote its first milk ordinance, and demanded sweeping reforms in food handling safety. She was an outspoken advocate for women and joined women's suffrage groups and eventually ran as representative to Congress. When she left the health department, she became head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Portland Medical Group of Coffee, Sears, Jones, and Joyce. During this period, she married Portland businessman George Lovejoy. Dr. Lovejoy served during World War I with the American Red Cross, and in 1919, she became the president of the American Women's Hospital Service, known as AWHS. In this capacity, she traveled widely to alleviate suffering from war, disaster, famine, revolution, and poverty. She organized the relief services of the AWHS throughout the Near East and especially in Greece. A bust of Dr. Lovejoy stands in the town square of Nikia, Piraeus, Greece. Esther also was the first president of the Medical Women's International Association, of which she helped to found in 1919. A mural with a portrait of Dr. Lovejoy is displayed in the Esther Pohl Lovejoy Hall at the Philippine Medical Women's Association building in Manila. Pohl began her term battling common infectious diseases of the early 20th century, maladies from smallpox, whooping cough, and tuberculosis, which she called the greatest evil of this day. The Oregon Journal called her one of the best-known women physicians on the coast, as well as one of the busiest women in the community. Tasked with curbing a 1907 outbreak, Esther Paul emphasized the importance of clean, vermin-free environments. In 1938, she finished Women, Physicians, and Surgeons, a monumental task completed by researching archives all over the world. Twenty years later, she published Women Doctors of the World. Her next book, Certain Samaritans, documented the complex work of the AWHS. She lived without extravagance and worked endless hours. In 1963, four years before her death, she traveled to Alaska, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Manila. She revisited the University of Oregon Medical School, where she had established the Pohl Memorial Scholarship Fund in memory of her first husband and son, saying that she was glad to have had, quote, the chance to remind the trustees that one-third of the scholarships should go to girls, unquote. Esther Pohl Lovejoy died in 1967 at the age of 97 and is buried at the Lone Fir Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. There appears to be no limit as to how far the women's revolution will take us. Constance Baker was born in 1921 
an American jurist and politician who served as a judge of the United States District Court for the Southern District in New York. Constance Baker, ninth of 12 children, her parents were immigrants from the Caribbean. Her mom worked as a seamstress, a teacher, and a domestic worker. Her father worked as a chef. Constance describes her parents' education as being equivalent to the 10th grade in the States. At 15, she read works by James Weldon Johnson and W.E.B. Dubois, who inspired her interest in black history. She met a minister who taught classes in black history that focused her attention on civil rights and the underrepresentation of black lawyers. She graduated with honors from Hill House High School. And although she lacked the means to attend college, it was through a philanthropist who heard her speak that offered his financial help. She graduated in 1946. A key strategist of the civil rights movement, she was state senator and borough president of Manhattan in New York City before becoming a United States federal judge. She obtained a role with the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund as a staff attorney in 1946 after receiving her law degree and continued her work with the organization for more than 20 years. Motley is widely acknowledged as a major figure in the civil rights movement, especially its legal battles. She was a lead trial attorney in a number of early and significant civil rights cases, including representing Martin Luther King Jr. and the Freedom Riders. She was a law clerk to Thurgood Marshall, aiding him in the case Brown versus Board of Education. Motley was the first African-American woman appointed to the federal judiciary, serving as a United States District Judge of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. In 1965, Motley was elected president of the borough of Manhattan to fill a one-year vacancy. She was the first woman to hold the office. As president, she authored a revitalization plan for Harlem and East Harlem, successfully fighting for $700,000 to improve these and other underserved areas of the city. She was the first African-American woman ever to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, winning nine of the ten cases she argued before the Supreme Court. The tenth was overturned in her favor. Motley continued her civil rights work as an elected official, and in 1964 she was elected to the New York State Senate, devoting much of her time to advocate for housing equality. She was a key legal strategist in the civil rights movement, helping to desegregate southern schools, buses, and lunch counters. Motley received many awards, including the Presidential Citizens Medal, the Congressional Gold Medal from Congress, and induction into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Her inspiration to Judith Human, co-founder of the World Institute on Disability, who credits Motley with her becoming the first licensed teacher in the state of New York who used a wheelchair. Inspiration to U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, 
who explicitly cites Motley's influence on her own political and law career, and federal judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who cited Motley as an influence in her career. An award-winning biographical documentary, Justice is a Black Woman, the Life and Work of Constance Baker Motley, was broadcast, and also a documentary, The Trials of Constance Baker Motley, the Civil Rights Queen, is an immersive biography of Motley, which was published in 2022. Constance Baker married in Connecticut to Joel Motley in 1946. They lived in Harlem. They were married 59 years until her death in 2005. She was 84. She left one son and three grandchildren. Her legacy continues today with the great contributions she made towards equality for all. The following biography contains talk of suicide and violence against the trans community. If you would like to avoid that content, please skip this next biography. Quote, My death needs to mean something. My death needs to be counted in the number of transgender people who die by suicide each year. Fix society, please. Unquote. Leela, born November 15, 1997, was an American transgender girl raised in Kings Mill, Ohio. She was assigned male at birth and grew up in a family affiliated with the Churches of Christ movement. At age 14, she came out as transgender to her parents, Carla and Doug Alcorn, who refused to accept her female gender identity. When she was 16, they denied her request to undergo transition treatment, instead sending her to a Christian-based conversion therapy with the intention of convincing her to reject her gender identity and accept the gender that she was assigned at birth. After she revealed her attraction toward males to her classmates, her parents removed her from school and revoked her access to social media. Leela Alcorn cited loneliness and alienation as key reasons for her decision to end her life and blamed her parents for causing these feelings. Alcorn used social media to publish her suicide note online, and it soon attracted international attention across mainstream and social media. LGBTQ rights activists called attention to the incident as evidence of the problems faced by transgender youth. While vigils were held in her memory in the United States and the United Kingdom, petitions were formed calling for the establishment of Leela's Law, a ban on conversion therapy in the United States, which received a supportive response from then-President Barack Obama. Within a year, the city of Cincinnati criminalized conversion therapy. Alcorn's parents were severely criticized for misgendering and deadnaming her in comments to the media. They defended their refusal to accept Alcorn's identity and their use of conversion therapy by reference to their Christian beliefs. Leela's suicide, December 28, 2014, at the young age of 17, attracted international attention. 
she had posted a suicide note about societal standards affecting transgender people and expressing the hope that her death would create a dialogue about discrimination, abuse, and lack of support for transgender people. Alcorn's suicide note read, quote, When I was 14, I learned what transgender meant and cried of happiness. After 10 years of confusion, I finally understood who I was. I immediately told my mom, and she reacted extremely negatively, telling me that it was a phase, that I would never truly be a girl, that God doesn't make mistakes, and that I am wrong. If you are reading this, parents, please don't tell this to your children. Even if you are Christian or are against transgender people, don't ever say that to someone, especially your kid. That won't do anything but make them hate themselves, and that's exactly what it did to me. Unquote. Following Leela's death, the world took notice. News outlets across the world had picked up the story. British newspaper The Independent wrote the incident, quote, triggered widespread anguish and raised a debate about the rights of transgender people, unquote. The U.S.-based Boston Globe stated that it, quote, served as a flashpoint for transgender progress in 2014, unquote. The New Republic referred to it as having, quote, sparked a national conversation about the plight of transgender kids and the scanty rights and respect our society affords them, unquote. There were vigils across the U.S., a vigil in Trafalgar Square, London. There were marches both in the Northwest, Washington, D.C., and Queen Street, Auckland. The same day, a candlelight vigil was held in New York City's Columbus Circle, a memorial protest against conversion therapy in the memory of Alcorn took place in Lynchburg, Virginia. Many celebrities acknowledged Leela, including Joey Soloway, the writer of the television show Transparent, who dedicated their Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series to Alcorn. During Diane Sawyer's interview with Caitlyn Jenner, Alcorn was mentioned by name and the message, Fix Society, Please. Other newspapers, including the Cincinnati Enquirer, stated that the incident raises important issues we hope will prompt conversations in families throughout our region. While 2014 witnessed gains for the trans right movement, Alcorn's death illustrated how trans people are still being victimized and still being disrespected, highlighting the high rate of transgender people who had been murdered that year, indicating that LGBTQ youth are about twice as likely to attempt suicide than heterosexual teens. Newsweek similarly placed Alcorn's suicide within its wider context of transphobic discrimination, highlighting that the Youth Suicide Prevention Program reports that over 50% of transgender youth attempt suicide before the age of 20, and that the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs recently published a report 
indicating that 72% of LGBTQ homicide victims in 2013 were transgender women. Alcorn's death was within wider problems facing young LGBTQ people. She became an international symbol of the ongoing challenges faced by LGBTQ youth. In death, she did accomplish much, and it will mean something. Her legacy over time will bring greater understanding and respect for diversity. People are people. This has been Laurie Johnson. Music by local pianist and composer Jennifer Grudenberger is gratefully acknowledged. This program is produced for KMUN in celebration of Women's History Month. You can find the podcast for this program at kmun.org.